everybody. Hey, it's bedtime stories. The Krakow Vampire. Carol Cott was born on December 18, 1946, in Krakow, Poland, a weary city in an exhausted country that had just come under the rule of communism the year before, and in some sad way was beginning to experience a semblance of stability as a result, following the horrors of the Holocaust, which had claimed upwards of five million Polish lives lives taken in a way that permeated the mood of not only every traumatized survivor, but of the air, the sky, the buildings. Carol Cott was born into a gray world, one that the boy was destined to tinge red. A difficult feat in a place like this, equivalent to provoking the cheeks of a corpse to flush. Looking back, it wasn't particularly hard for those who knew Carol to imagined him being responsible for the attacks. He was an odd boy, the type to always openly be fantasizing about the macabre, though his peers suspected Carol did this for attention and never took him seriously. He enjoyed torturing and killing animals, frogs, chickens, cats, calves, anything that was relatively easy to catch and not much of a threat to harm him as he harmed it. He was abusive towards his little sister, an eight-year-old who was no match for her teenage brother. Carol had learned to be cruel in clever ways, pushing, pinching, suffocating. Most all siblings fight, it's not uncommon, but Carol was terrorizing his sister, feeding off of her fear, and he knew how to do it in a way that made her seem like a whiner, when in reality she was living in a kind of hell one where if she did not do as her brother wanted, he would lock her in a closet or tie her to a chair. He behaved as warden of his own personal prison where the little girl was his lone inmate. This troubling behavior was likely inspired by a school trip he'd thoroughly enjoyed, one where he'd realized he'd missed his true calling. Carol Cott wished he could have been a Nazi experimenter, a doctor of death, like Joseph Mengele. His classmates had seemed distraught following their tour of Auschwitz, but Carol had been inspired, overcome with a sense of nostalgia he had no business feeling. He'd never been to war, or prison, or even spent much time in a hospital. But in the concentration camp, he'd felt at home, felt an attachment to the place, and a deep sense of loss in knowing he'd missed out on all of the horrors that had taken place there. There was something terribly wrong with young Carol Cott, and it was beginning to show. It was beginning to stride out ahead of him, and he wanted badly to keep up. He didn't want this thing, whatever it was, this darkness, to get away. At an abattoir, a butcher shop, he took a step to satiate the murderous urges, to prove worthy of them, by drinking blood. He did this under the guise of foolery, acting as a means of entertainment for the butchers who laughed and cheered whenever the weird boy visited. The boy who wanted to watch them kill and carve up the goats and pigs and cattle. The boy who would take a cup full of warm animal blood and drink it greedily in return for attention, 
the abattoir's own personal circus freak he was. But even though he was weird and awkward and at times freakishly mean, not just in the violence he doled out on animals and his sister, no, that stuff was a secret. Verbally mean. I mean. Even though he could be just a total dickhead, there was something likable about Carol. It was in the delight he expressed, in the mischievous way he'd look at people while insulting them or molesting them or grossing them out. It's disingenuous to say Carol Cott was out for attention. In truth, Carol was out to satisfy his sadism. And there's little doubt in my mind that the same delighted look he'd give the butcher while slurping from a cup of blood was the same one he had on his face while stabbing old women and children in the backs. September 21st, 1964. Helena Velgen, a 48-year-old housekeeper, is done work for the day and making the 10-minute walk from Krakow's main square to her small church with plans of spending some time in prayer before heading home for the evening. The weather is overcast, chilly, and she wraps her coat tight about herself, quickening her step to get the blood flowing, to bring the church closer. And before long she can see it, stained glass windows cheering up the gloom of the street, warming the pallor of this small piece of weary communist Poland. When she arrives, Alina spots a friend, and the two chat for a moment under a mural of the Virgin Mary, flanked by the statues of saints. The humble women comment on the weather, the state of the world as they experience it, which is limited, encouraging one another with the kindness in their eyes, before Helena reluctantly breaks away and heads up a walkway towards the wooden doors of the sanctuary, known locally as the Church of Servants. Inside, a killer stalks its prey through stained glass, face seemingly bathed in a coat of candy, though there's nothing sweet about the young man, the teenager, Carol Cott. Based plainly on looks, you couldn't be blamed for failing to sense the danger of him, which for any budding serial killer is a key attribute. Charm comes in many forms, some that can't be replicated, Carol Cott is the disguise of his youth, the disguise of his soft, hairless face, neatly combed black hair, and oafish frame. But the majority of Carol's charm is in his large eyes. He is still too young for the madness in them to be obvious, so for now, those dark, dancing orbs do not betray him. They work to endear him to his elders as well as to children, whom find Carol Cott's intense, almost delighted gaze Fascinating. Hypnotic. That look is in the window now, as the unsuspecting victim and Helena approaches her church. Carol Cott retreats into the shadows, eyeballs spinning, and lowers himself into a pew as if to begin prayer. Though in truth, he is coiling like a snake. This will be his first time. He woke up this morning certain that today would be the day he would finally kill a human being. Animals had sufficed until recently. Terrorizing his little sister had done the trick on occasion too. 
but the impulse to kill, to slip a blade into a human being, then drink the blood, had grown so much as he tried to get through the day's classes that he can't recall how he went from fantasizing at his desk to the real thing, here, now, still in his school clothes, a red student patch displayed on his arm. This is sloppy, not at all how he envisioned, but as the woman meekly makes her way toward the pews, he can't help himself. Everything seems to slow down, except for Carol. It surprises both parties how quick it begins and ends. He gets up, approaches Selena in a non-threatening way, aloof, and as he passes her, he turns and stabs at the heart. Carol had studied for this, had learned that the easiest way to the heart is through the back, and gives one solid stab with his blade to the area just below Helena's left shoulder blade, then rushes out of the church. Helena can't figure out why the young man shoved her. Her back is sore, and she's annoyed to find that her coat is ripped when she reaches back to touch the area that's bothering her. It's not until she gets home and takes her coat off that she realizes she's bleeding. A doctor will soon confirm what she didn't want to believe. The wound in her back is the result of having been stabbed with a knife. When she speaks to police, they seem dubious to her story. The injury isn't life-threatening, and the crime being claimed seems so unusual that they decide to ignore it. No reason to upset the public. No reason to investigate what likely is a story the confused woman manufactured to explain away some kind of accident. A trip on a carpet at the grocery, a slip at the seafood market perhaps, though nothing that would explain away the stab wound. But it was completely out of the realm of possibility in the eyes of law enforcement that a schoolboy would randomly stab a woman in a church. So they sweep the criminal claim under a rug, though it only takes two days before it begins to smell fishy. Carol Cott will later reveal that the first attack relieved all of his angst. He now had an outlet, a use for all the dark desire and thought that had bombarded him most of his young life. He enjoyed so much the feeling of power and stabbing the woman in the church that less than 48 hours later, after having read nothing in the papers of his attack, Carol went on the hunt once again. 78-year-old Francesca Lemondoska disembarked a bus in Krakow's old town, her arms full of bread and eggs and meat, at around 1 p.m. of September 23, 1964, and immediately became a stalking victim. When she entered her apartment building through a side door and began a long climb up the stairwell that led to her unit, a young man with dark hair and a pale face soon approached the building's side entrance as well, looked around swiftly, then entered taking two steps at a time in order to catch up to his prey. The old woman heard the metal door open and close below, followed by the echo of footsteps, and slowed her snail's pace to carefully turn around, her groceries working as a counterbalance, and waited a moment to allow whoever was rushing up behind her passage. When Carol Cott's young face came into view around the corner of the fourth floor, Francesca smiled down at the schoolboy, and then looked back up to the fifth as she shuffled over slightly. Carol Cott closed the distance a moment later, his young legs propelling him up the final flight as if he were swimming 
like a shark. And he struck without hesitation, stabbing Francesca one time in the back before retreating like a wraith back down the stairwell and calmly exiting the building, licking blood from his fingers he'd used to clean his blade, something he found more exhilarating than the hunt, or the attack itself even. A couple of men sharing a bottle would discover the old woman calling for help not long after, and Francesca Lewandowska would live to tell the tale, the same tale police had ignored days previous, but now had to take seriously, that a young man, a schoolboy, was loose on the streets of Krakow, stabbing vulnerable women in the back with the intent to kill. Though he had now failed twice to finish the job, Carol Cott, as we'll soon learn, was a crack shot with a rifle, but shit with a blade. He had narrowly missed the heart yet again, and left a witness who had clearly seen his face. For the clumsy 17-year-old, the thrill he'd experienced from tasting the blood of what he thought was a murder victim of his was counterfeit. When he heard that both women had survived, it downgraded his experiences to that of drinking the butcher blood. At least now there was some buzz about his crimes, some fear in the air, even if it was only being passed through word of mouth. Carol promised himself, though, that the third time would be the charm. September 29th, 1964. Maria Plita, an 86-year-old who was reading a paper posted on her church's bulletin board, was stabbed in the back and left to gasp on the cobblestone. This church was located not far from the first attack, yet nothing on the board Maria had been reading, nor in the local news, had been shared to warn the people that a would-be assassin was on the prowl. Carol Cott was sure he'd become a bona fide killer after this attempt. He sucked the old woman's blood from his fingers and hustled away through the dark halls of the old church, guided by candlelight, until he reached the front doors and slowed his step, calmly exiting into a dusky Krakow evening. He was getting good at the aftermath, perfecting his ability to stay calm, but not too calm. No, that would draw suspicion. He continued his odd visits to the abattoir, continued to gross at his classmates with off-the-wall stories involving rape and torture, subjects he'd bring up as if they added somehow to a completely unrelated conversation, say about sport, a habit that would soon give cause for his peers to tease that he must be the one stabbing people. Speaking of sport, Cott had joined a rifle club in preparation for his dream career in the military and he made certain to attempt his killings moments before attending a session so as to have an alibi. By the time the old woman in the church was discovered by a nun, Cott was sighting his rifle and speaking with one of his only friends, a girl his age that he had met at the rifle club, a young art student that knew Carol was different, odd, perhaps mentally ill, but she found him amusing, different, so she didn't mind his company. As Carol excitedly shared with her that he felt he couldn't miss a target on this day, 86-year-old Maria Plita, whom Carol had failed as usual to stab through the heart, puncturing a lung instead, looked up desperately into the nun's eyes who discovered her lying in a pool of blood and repeated the words, Young man, young man, before falling unconscious, forever. Maria doesn't die immediately. Following surgery, she lies in a coma, 
and it is during this time that police receive what they believe to be a break in the case. That night, a man shows up in the emergency room of the hospital, asking about Maria. The nurse in charge turns him away, and immediately picks up a card left by an investigator, and calls the number on it to report the strange interaction. This recent attack, along with the others, had not yet been made public, and even though it had now been confirmed by all three victims that a young man, a schoolboy, with dark hair, dark eyes, and an innocent face, had walked up from behind and stabbed them once before wordlessly turning to flee. The nurse's description is what they will choose to go with. When Maria Plita dies the following day, September 30th of 1964, the people of Communist Krakow are finally made aware that a serial stabber is on the loose, targeting defenseless older women in churches and apartment stairwells, stabbing once from behind at the area of the heart, then disappearing before it's clear to the victim what has happened to them. The nurse's detail of the man who checked on poor Maria is a nightmare version of Carol Cott, and as the boy reads it during lunch break at school, his cherubic face morphs to somewhat match the description. Citizens are being told to be on the lookout for a mentally unstable man, probably in his 40s, with a dead right eye, sharp cheekbones upon which hangs a long, weary face that twitches uncontrollably. Carol should be relieved, but instead, he's incensed. Well, that's not entirely true, as a modicum of relief washes over his cruel heart at the news of the woman's death. He's a legitimate killer now, though some fool, likely from Maria's neighborhood, will now take the credit. No matter. Carol Cott has bigger plans for mayhem than stabbing old ladies after school. His teenage years are coming to an end, and school will have to take on real meaning if he ever wants to become a so-called monster like Mengele, a master to a boy like Carol Cott. He will throw himself into his studies for officer candidate school. He will retreat to the shadows, build up his collection of knives, build up his strength, his knowledge of anatomy. He will become what his dark urges truly want from him. To be a god. No. A living demon. On Earth. Rosetta Stone, everybody. You know, for a long time, I've been wanting to go to Japan. But the thing holding me back is that I'm intimidated by the language. And that's why I've been going pretty hard at the Rosetta Stone service. I want to be able to take my girl to Japan, a place that she's always wanted to go, and suddenly just start speaking fluent Japanese at the restaurant. That's my goal. <laughs> Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on a desktop or as an app, and it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It's been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users, 25 languages offered. It's fast language acquisition. Rosetta Stone immerses you in a bunch of ways. Uh, there's an intuitive process where you pick up the language naturally, first with words and phrases, then sentences. They have the speech recognition feature. Built-in true accent gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Uh, it's like having a personal trainer for your accent. It's convenient, and it's an amazing value, especially with this offer here. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Dark Topic listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today 
That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. All right, everybody, Zipix toothpicks. This is something that I use all the time. So this episode is brought to you by Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Zipix brings you a totally satisfying, convenient, and great-tasting way to curb your nicotine cravings. Now you can get your nicotine fix anytime, anywhere, without having to rely on smoking or vaping. Zipix toothpicks give you an easier, better, and more discreet way to get your fix. They're available in six great, long-lasting flavors, and they have options in 2 milligrams and 3 milligrams of nicotine. Zipix are perfect for flights, sporting events, restaurants, podcasting... (laughs) Uh, literally anywhere that you smoke or vape, where that's banned. They're also one of the most cost-effective nicotine products on the market. Zipix also offers caffeine and B12-infused toothpicks if you're not a nicotine user or if you're trying to get away from your nicotine habit. Zipix have already helped tens of thousands of customers, including myself, to get their nicotine fix without needing to inhale smoke or vape oils. Make your lungs happy and try Zipix nicotine-infused toothpicks. So ditch the cigarettes, ditch the vape, and get some nicotine-infused toothpicks at zipixtoothpicks.com today. Get 10% off your first order by using the code DARKTOPIC at checkout. Your lungs will be glad you did. Must be 21 years of age or older to order. Warning, nicotine is an addictive chemical. Zip more, smoke less with Zipix nicotine toothpicks. There are no leads. The trail is cold. Investigators wait for another attack, but it never comes. It is assumed that the madman has either died or been taken into custody on another charge. The consensus among investigators is that the man is locked away in an asylum and that the investigation should no longer be of priority. The people, however, feel different. For months, the churches sit empty of women. The few who dare to walk or travel by bus alone often look unnaturally bulky as they have strapped cutting boards and metal cook pans to their bodies as armor against the stabbing psycho whom they are never given another word about after the initial warning in the papers. For the 17 months it took before Carol Cott struck again, he had not been deviantly dormant. A rejection from military school, followed by his acceptance into a communications college, had taken up much of the now 19-year-old's attention. But to keep his demons appeased, Carol had experimented with other methods of mayhem. Poisonings, all across the city. Caught with dose beer bottles with potassium arsenate and leave them on bar tables. But much to his chagrin, he never heard word of a resulting death. After attempting the trick on a classmate's tea, Carol realized that the problem was in the smell. His classmate took one sip and then tossed the poisonous brew, suffering only a bellyache as a result. In a future attempt to mask the taste and odor, Cott then went on a campaign of heavily dosing vinegar bottles at restaurants, but the results were nil. He bumbled around for a spell as an arsonist, but none of his fires did much damage. Cot was too skittish, never sticking around long enough to ensure his plan carried through. That is, until February 13th, 
of 1966, when he released all of his frustrations regarding school, his prospects of joining the military, the boys who laughed at him, the girls who seemed to smell his queerness just as easily as the impotent poison. He released all of his anger at not being recognized for what only he knew himself to be, a powerful killer, a superior to these Welches who refused to pay him the respect he was due. He released it all on a little boy pulling a sled. February 13th, 1966. 11-year-old Lezek Sawek wasn't having a very good day. He'd woke up this Sunday full of excitement and energy, chattering nonstop at his parents about the competition to be held at nearby Kosciuszka Mound, a sledding competition that he'd been dreaming about for weeks, until moments ago when that dream had been shattered, after he'd been turned away from the registration table, as a result of the condition of his rusty old sled that disqualified him from the event. Lezek now dragged his betrayer slowly behind him as he trudged through Volsky Forest, through the wind and whipping snow, back home to Sulk. Behind him, a young man followed, though Lezek barely noticed. In fact, he was so depressed by the failure of this day's promise that he barely acknowledged Carol Codd as he called out and asked the boy about the competition. Later, the killer would share that the 11-year-old was surprisingly easy to take out. He only needed to shove his face into his coat to muffle the weak screams as he repeatedly stabbed the much smaller boy to death. He left the body to be discovered soon after by skiers. The taste of the young blood invigorated Carol, and he later would share that the 13th may be a bad luck day for many, especially his young victim, it turned out. But for him, this would be the most glorious day of his life. Following this shocking child murder, the leads came flooding in, though none were accurate. Again, a middle-aged crazed lunatic was the imagined perpetrator, allegedly seen harassing kids that day at the man-made sledding hill. One woman, who was particularly adamant about having interacted with the killer, claimed she'd felt threatened herself. Her enthusiasm would later be found to have been a byproduct of her wanting to hide the fact that she herself was a killer, having murdered her own child in the days previous and using the stabbing death of young Lesek as a means to cover her own tracks, though it only succeeded in creating them. The public, it turned out, were as foolish and clueless and clumsy as the investigators, as caught. Gossip in a communist Poland was as rare as a good meal, and they were starving for it. Residents scrambled to come up with theories, to create false leads based on pure imagination, that destroyed the investigation from the start. Carol Codd, as a result, was becoming impatient for some recognition, and he started to hint to his fellow students about his involvement in the boy's stabbing. A picture of Lesek Soek, his crumpled body on a bed of blood-stained snow, his small hand still gripping the rope to his sled, was posted in the Krakow newspapers. Some of Carol's classmates later admitted to believing he could have been responsible, but Carol was an attention seeker. So even though he was basically confessing his crimes to anyone who'd listen, nobody took seriously the boy who claimed to be Wolf. Two months later, 
on Thursday, April 14th of 1966, a seven-year-old girl named Malgosha was looking at her apartment window, bored and desperate for anything to do, when she spotted the mailman. Malgosha begged her mother to let her check the mailbox. She'd been kept indoors for weeks on doctor's orders following a heart scare and was anxious to do something other than sleep or read or stare listlessly out the window. Her mother relented on this occasion, and Malgosha disappeared at the apartment door, pulling her coat on as she fled. Carol Cott was sitting on a step near the mailboxes when the precious little girl appeared from thin air. He didn't hesitate, walking up behind the little one as she checked for letters, wrapping a thin, pale hand over her mouth, clutching her tight, and stabbing, plunging the knife into the chest, back, and abdomen multiple times before fleeing the scene. A passing cab driver would later recall seeing a young man with large eyes running from the apartment where the little girl had been left for dead. But, yet again, even after all of his study, his obsession with knives and anatomy, Carol missed the vital organs. He had long ago deduced that the easiest way to the heart was through the back, and he tried to reach Malgosha's already compromised one with the blade. He'd ravaged the little girl with a barrage of ruthless stabs, but as he sprinted from the mailboxes, running his finger over the blade to spare his tongue the possibility of being cut, young Malgosha swayed to her feet. The second grader managed to get back inside her apartment, where her mother screamed at the sight of her blood-soaked baby. Before collapsing, Malgosha managed to say, quote, A man beat me up. She was rushed to hospital where, miraculously, she survived the vicious assault. Of this crime, Carol Cott would later muse, quote, Suffering is beautiful, and inflicting pain on others is a form of art, though not everyone can do it. At the Rifle Club, at least one person was beginning to suspect Carol could be the maniac from the newspapers. I mean, for one, he had outright told her he was, but for two, he'd recently shared that he intended to kill her, that he'd slice her wrists with a glass shard before throwing her in a river to make it appear as suicide. Finally, the name Carol Cott was on the lips of investigators. They interviewed Carol, and initially they felt as though there was no way the young man could be their killer. By all accounts, he was a good boy, his instructor at the Rifle Club in particular sang the praises of Cott, though he'd later eat his words when Cott shared that he'd been planning to kill the man's son, and thought it amusing that the man had told his boy that he wished he'd be more like his prized student, and Carol. Investigators moved slowly, not wanting to spook their quarry surveilling him in case the girl was correct in her suspicion that Cott was the elusive maniac. They allowed him to continue his life, uninterrupted. They waited until he'd finished his exams, waited until he proved through completing his normal routines for weeks following the attempted murder of the little girl that he was of sound mind. The idea was to later prove Carol Cott was not insane. If he was their man, they wanted him put to death. Eventually, on June 1st, the day after Carol's exams, they decided to bring the boy in for proper scrutiny. 
in custody, Carroll denied the allegations, though more than one officer would share that the now 20-year-old seemed to be enjoying every second of the interrogation. The break came when the second stabbing victim was brought in to identify Cot in a lineup. When she didn't hesitate to finger him, Carol grinned wide and screamed at Francesca Lewandowska, now 80 years old and crippled from her assault, screamed that he would finish her off, that he should have been sure, back when they were alone together, in that crumbling stairwell. What followed was a deluge of confession. The pages totaled more than 8,000. Now that Carol knew he had been exposed, he reveled in the admissions, sharing that he had tasted the blood from his knife following each attack, a piece of information that was leaked to the press and earned him the nickname of the Krakow Vampire. Carol was asked to reenact his crimes on video using a cardboard knife. They provided him a live prop and a young girl whom caught violently grabbed and stabbed into with the useless prop knife in scenes that likely scarred the actress mentally in the same way Cot had scarred his surviving victims physically. Psychiatrists attempted to secure Carol Cott in one of their mental institutions for further study. But because of the reckless patience investigators had exercised in their surveillance of the young man following the attempted murder of the seven-year-old girl, Cott instead was put to trial. In court, the arrogant young man sealed his fate by behaving in a cocky manner, smiling at the victim families, the prosecutors and judge, whenever a particularly heinous piece of his murderous work was put on display. The final straw came when Carol proclaimed to the court, quote, I don't drink vodka or have sex with prostitutes. Therefore, I'm not an evil person. You can be a good person and still be a murderer, just like me. While being held for his crimes, Cott was observed by psychiatrists. He exhibited no psychotic behavior, though when asked directly about his crimes, he expressed no remorse or sympathy for his victims. Even going so far as to state that if he were to be let loose, he continue with his evolution as a serial killer. A scan was allegedly performed on his brain, finding no abnormalities. And at the end of his trial, when this additional information was shared, the decision was easy. Carol Cott was sentenced to death. He showed no emotion, though it appeared he had trouble swallowing a lump that had instantly formed in his throat. One particular test of Cott's mindset was shared before sentencing and gave all in attendance chill bumps. Here is the short transcript of that personality test, the questions being asked by a mental health professional, and the answers being given by Carol Cott. Quote, The future seems to me misty. I am waiting for life. When I am older, I will die. I love my mother, but I do not like her. I would like my father to die. I would do anything to forget that I exist. The worst thing that I managed to do was to be born. Carol Cott was sentenced to hang after multiple appeals. Afterwards, in what would be his final interview, he said, quote, Soon where I'm going, I will meet with my victims and we will speak. 
here on earth I have no one to talk to. On May 16th of 1968, at the age of 21, a noose was thrown over his neck. Carol Cott's last chilling words were, quote, The biggest pleasure was when the knife was entering the body. This feeling was worth the hanging. At autopsy, despite the results of multiple tests showing that he had no damage to his brain, a large tumor was excised from Carol Cott's skull. And uh, that will do it. It's kind of weird, wasn't it? That's a that's an old episode from uh, Dead Time Stories from Tier Thirteen of Patreon, and uh, I reproduced it, and I listened through the whole thing. Uh, you know, you know, you ever heard about uh, how Stephen King wrote Cujo when he was coked up? That's my Cujo. <laughs> Some parts I was listening to, I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? You know, and if you felt that way, then you know I'm with you. Thanks so much for supporting. Thanks for listening. And uh, I'll be back real soon with some brand new content without massive amounts of fucking drugs and alcohol in my system as I write it. Um, it was an old, it, it, it was what it was. That was what it was. Hey, check out all of our, <laughs> fuck, it was the Krakow Vampire. You know, I'm pretty hard on myself. I, I, I know I worked really hard on that. I can't remember working on it. Uh, but I, but there there are parts of it where I was like, oh, shit, yeah, you were fucking going off there. And then there was parts where I was like, hey, uh, I think you left out something. I think that you, like, there was, like, disconnections, you know? Like, what the fuck just happened there? Are you serious? Like, and in my mind, I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, no, I read the book and I, and I uh, watched the documentaries and, and it's like, I'm, I'm, I wrote that for myself. It's like, I left out parts, left out things, pertinent information in certain areas that, uh, I felt I could leave out because I already know it, but Hey, didn't write it for yourself. You fucking idiot. There's people listening to this. Anyways. Oh, I got to talk about some people here. I got to talk about some really important people here right now. Hey, Diana S., good friend of mine. Uh, we were playing poker the other night, and, man, she just laid down uh, quadruple aces. And I had quadruple kings, and I was like, Diana S., come on now. How could you do me like that? And then Annie Hyatt. She was in the background, and uh, she was giving Diana S a massage there. And uh, damn, I was like, Annie Hyatt, can you please come over here and give me a massage on the next fucking round here? I mean, is that like the magic juice? And then Rebecca Faltonier, she was the dealer at the table. And she was like, no, we can't have multiple massages going on at the same table. I was like, okay, Rebecca Fulton here. I just wanted like Annie Hyatt to come give me a massage. It seems to be going really well for Diana S. Anyways, it was a real fucking mess. But thanks to all three of you and welcome to tier 50 of 1159 Media Patreon. Eyes cocked, doors locked, stay paranoid. 1159 Media Patreon. And, uh, be back real soon.
Love you. Thank you.